0: Welcome to The Spectator's podcast, I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, a new centrist party finally formed. So, what does this mean for British politics? Plus, we talk about artificial intelligence and ask, is it something to fear? And finally, we look at Hindus and ask, why are they often so crass? So, it's finally happened. This week, a cross-party group of moderate MPs broke ranks and formed a new centrist group. They're not quite a party, and in the end, there wasn't anything in particular that triggered it. The former Tory and Labour MPs just decided that finally, enough was enough. James Forsyth writes in this week's cover article that though the group is small, they could cause big problems for both parties. Katie Balls spoke to James, Gavin Shuker, a former Labour MP and one of the founding members of the independent group, and Joe Twyman, director of Delta Poll, to see what they make of the new party.
1: So Gavin, how did the independent group come together?
2: I think after the 2017 election, it became clear that the idea stay and fight and the kind of Corbynite strain that had taken over the leadership was going to take over the party. You see a Labour Party now that's captured at every single level, constitutional committee, leadership, parliamentary Labour Party. You know, if we were to force a vote of no confidence while we were in it, I'm not convinced that this PLP would pass a vote of no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn, for example. And then it becomes, well, what's your response going to be? Because you can't go out there and advocate a Corbyn government. That means you either slink off or you try and develop something different. And so I think for me, my thinking started to solidify about 18 months ago. We stayed in to try and shape the best outcome on Brexit. It's clear Corbyn is not going to be dragged kicking or screaming to a people's vote. And at that point, you've got to put your hands up and say, we need to do something different.
1: And we've been hearing about a new centrist party for some time now. and there's been Yeah, me too. yeah, Various reports of different groups trying to do this. But when it comes to Labour MPs, we had the Fair Oak Farm meetings a couple of months ago, where we heard about an arger in a nice property and Labour MPs going and plotting to break away. Is this an extension of that?
2: So... To be fair to those that came and did that, very much around exploring what a plan B might look like. But in terms of those that were doing that, you know, there's a whole diversity of opinions and plans and strategies and so on. So that's definitely instrumental. And I was quite keen trying to create the space for people to think about it, because in politics, you think you've got a massive problem, but there's some grown-ups in a room somewhere trying to work it. And there aren't. And then you realise that you're the grown ups in the room trying to work out what to do with it. That required space to do. But equally, there'll be people that were part of that group that won't make that journey, I'm almost certain.
1: When we look at the launch of the Original Seven, you have been named by some as the ringleader in this, partly because you registered the group's, the father company, and you did that last month. Um, How do you organise yourself? Are you uh, taking on a role where you are leading them?
2: So, I mean, it's day four. We're going to meet next week and we'll have an inaugural meeting. And then that's quite important for putting in place your standing orders, your rules, how do people join and so on. You know, the speculation around leadership, my steer would be probably you're likely to come through the period of the independent group with a convener and a business manager to try and basically do the practicalities. And then probably some people speaking some around some areas of policy But we're not a political party. A political party has a leader, it has a manifesto, it has infrastructure in the country. It's day four. I think we'll be able to say more next week.
1: And James, in your cover piece, you write about the consequences of this new group, Not Yet Party, on the political landscape. We are now up to 11 MPs. Is this significant or is this really quite a small breakaway?
3: I think it is significant. I think it is is both small but also significant you know in a way if you think back to when jeremy corbyn last was challenged for labour leadership in 2016 two-thirds of his own mps declared that they had no confidence in him yet this breakaway even today is made up of less than four percent of the parliamentary labour party as elected at last election so this isn't a kind of rupture this isn't a declaration of unilateral declaration of independence by the parliamentary labour party something that that had been talked about in the past but I think it does matter because these eight Labour MPs speak for a lot more of their colleagues. What they're essentially saying is that in good conscience, they couldn't go into the next election and urge people to vote Labour and make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. In a way, the last election, because the Tories started that campaign 20-odd points ahead, Labour MPs could get round that very easily. You know, I, mean, I know when you talk to Labour MPs, your heart wasn't really in pressing them on. But what are you going to do if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister? Because it just didn't seem like a viable option. Jeremy Corbyn will start the next election campaign within striking distance of number 10, so I think it matters for that reason. I think the fact that these three Tory MPs have joined provides two challenges to this new group. Oh, three challenges actually. The first is on Monday it was quite clear that there is a space for a kind of social democratic party minus anti Semitism and full on renationalisation of everything. That appeared to be the space that this group was trying to occupy on Monday. The addition of these three Tory MPs makes it appear more of a pro-second referendum party than a traditional social democratic party and I think that that provides some challenges and then I think in policy terms it provides some challenges because you know Anna Subri says that the coalition government was marvellous all the Labour MPs in this grouping argued ferociously against the coalition government at various points uh, between 2010 and 2015 so I think I think this is the challenge which is you know it can't just be new Labour and exile now because of the addition of these three Tories and so what is the policy and intellectual and political space that they're trying to carve out for themselves
1: yeah Gavin one of the I suppose depending which way you look at it you could call it a criticism is that if you look at all the MPs who are currently in your group and you try and work out what have in common other than not wanting to hold by-elections it seems to be the fact that they have all at some point spoken positively about the second referendum. So what do you think the group stands for which every member shares?
2: Well we stood up on Monday and laid out our values and it's quite easy to say well hang on a minute they seem like sensible mainstream moderate values in a liberal democracy but the point we've made is that both parties are going away from those values and leaving a massive gaping space in the radical centre it's absolutely fine to kind of say well what's your policy on x or on y look events are going to flush that out very clearly and to take the point about you know the former Tories that had joined the group and their views on the coalitions of you know 2010 to 2015 all of us have got a political history but we're also all united on the fact that when you're coming to an end of a period of austerity, you don't want to plunge yourself back into it. In other words, I think it's going to be a blend of traditions. But if both two major parties wish to continue drifting to the left and right, there's a space there for a sensible agenda, probably for you know a very significant time to come.
1: And Joe, we have had some polls out this week which have told us that how this group could potentially do and so far the signs are quite positive it seems that the the first one had the independent group at around eight percent but the slight problem with the polling is it's quite hard to poll the public surely on something that had only existed for a couple of hours
4: that's a bit of an understatement it's what uh, it's what my idol peter snow would describe as just a bit of fun okay. these polls are interesting in so much as they provide a uh, provide a snapshot but the difficulty they have in providing any actual proper explanatory power let alone predictive power is that the situation is changing very rapidly and so these polls that you refer to some of which had the independent group as high as 14 other which had them in the single figures those polls were all conducted before the conservatives made their announcement and so immediately they become out of date so that's one problem you have to consider this is moving very quickly and it's a very fluid situation the other difficulty is that actually most people the average people out there don't know much about this at all and what they're doing therefore is responding to what is effectively a hypothetical situation a party that is not a party in a voting intention question where they know nothing about it it doesn't uh, it doesn't even have uh, have a leader and so what you end up measuring is this is new and exciting versus these old things that you don't like that's not much use in terms of long-lasting stuff however there is some interesting underlying data about where the core support for this group might come from if you look at conservative remainers around about one third of them don't like Theresa May think that she's doing she's doing badly around about the same number one third of Labour remainers think that Jeremy Corbyn isn't doing well and that he's uh, he's doing badly. You add those two groups together, it amounts to about 10% of the population. And I would say that that's a good base on which the new party can uh, can build. The question is, will they have the momentum to continue? But I imagine that in the short term, the influence will be greater on the dispatch box than it will be on the ballot box, given the number of MPs they have compared to their uh, share in the polls. But this could all, uh, this could all change as the, as the events that Gavin articulated take place.
3: There'll be one group who'd be tearing their hair out listening to this discussion, and that's the Liberal Democrats, because Gavin is saying, you know, you've got the Tories going to the right, Labour going to the left, so there's space in the centre. That is the traditional Liberal Democrat pitch. There's also people say, you know, and I personally subscribe to this analysis, there is obviously a political home for that part of the 48% who feel let down by how Brexit has gone on, you know, Aren't reconciled the result, or aren't, if you want to put it another way, aren't reconciled to the way in which Brexit is going. But again, you know, they, they have a party, and the Liberal Democrats went into the last election committed to a second referendum. So I think the kind of question to my mind is: the Lib Dems keep failing, and is that just because of uh, the trust issues connected with that brand, because of tuition fees and the coalition and everything else, or is it that the electoral appeal of this of this policy mix is more limited than Westminster tends to think?
4: In a lot of cases, this comes down to how people actually vote. And we like to think that people sit there with a copy of each party's manifesto and they look through each one and make careful notes and then come to a decision on that. In actual fact, for a lot of people, it's not about policy. It's about the heuristics, the rules of thumb and the, and the narrative surrounding these parties. Who do I trust? Who do I think will be good for the country? Who do I think will be best for people like me? Who can really deliver on their promises? These are all important questions that we ask of a party, but crucially also ask of a leader, which is an issue that obviously has to be addressed for this new group. And when it comes to the Lib Dems, yes, they might have in some cases the right policy for a centre party, but what they don't have is those right heuristics. And so people don't trust them. Their traditional base don't trust them because of the coalition, because of the debacle over tuition fees. They're now not as visible as they once were, so they have difficulty addressing that. Their last leader was not particularly liberal in many ways, and that all helps to to damage that overall reputation they have. The, if you like, anti-politics, for want of a better expression, position that this new group can establish, I imagine will be appealing at least to some degree to people within the Lib Dems, and more widely. The key question, however, is not just whether people support it, but whether they really emotionally connect with it. Because this is so often what politics is about nowadays. It's all very well saying X percent of people agree with this, but do they really emotionally connect? That's, of course, why we set up Delta Poll, to try and measure these these sorts of things, because it is so important.
2: I can't disagree with any of that analysis at all. Ignore the polls right now. They're polling hypotheticals. It's very early in the process. But... What I would say is, I think there is a huge discontent in the country about the way that both major parties and all parties are handling the events that are there. And I actually suspect that's much deeper than is even showing up in the numbers. You know, whether you voted leave or you voted remain, no one can look at the situation and say, what a fantastic set of dynamic leaders with a plan to get us out of the hole that we're in. I suspect that early days, those people that Uh, genuinely see this as a hopeful project will say look it's not anti-politics it's anti-politics as usual and therefore actually doing stuff like this where we're just honest and straightforward about what we think I thought the most powerful moments this week were when six of my colleagues and myself three of my uh, Tory colleagues now stood up and were just completely honest about what they viewed the situation as I think that does have the capacity to have a real connection with people and We know that since 2008, there is all sorts of chaos in this system. A lot of old traditional alliances have broken down and patterns of voting as well. I suspect there's quite a bit more to come to this story.
1: Now, one of the big things when we're looking at the impact of this party is who does it hurt the most? Which of the main parties? And James, in your cover piece, you write that if the Tories manage to take advantage of this, they could be in power for another 12 years. What is your thinking behind that claim?
3: So if you go back to to Joe's point about who the obvious base for this party is, to put it simply, there are far more Labour remainers than there are Tory remainers. The Tory party has become a much more Leave party in the few years since the referendum. I think at the last election, Joe, correct me if I go wrong, up to 70% of Tory voters are now Leavers. I find it hard to think that those voters are going to be attracted by a party led by the most. Ardent advocates of a second referendum. So I think the damage it does is greater to Labour simply because there are more Labour remainers and I think there are more people on the Labour side who operating under uh quite deliberately created by the Labour leadership, operated under a, under a confusion about what Labour's position on Brexit is. I don't think you'd find many Tory remainers who think that their party is in favour of a second referendum or no Brexit at all. I think I think if you look at the polling data, there are lots of Labour remainers who think that the party is in favour of a second referendum or stopping Brexit. At some point, the penny is going to have to drop because the Labour Party will not move to stop Brexit or to create a second referendum. And that, I think, is why this group has an opportunity. If I were to have Gavin, the thing that would make me the most excited about this moment is the last three elections in this country have produced two hung parliaments and one governing majority of 12. This suggests that even within this parliament, you know, they now have as many MPs as the DUP. If you could get to a position where after the next election, you had a block of, say, 15 to 20 MPs. It doesn't sound that large, but the political history since 2010 would suggest that that block... Would have been able to exercise really significant influence in every single one of the parliaments we've had since then, and that I think is the big is perhaps the biggest single difference between this group and the SDP.
1: And Gavin, when it comes to a future election, we at the moment think we could have an early election at any point, or maybe in twenty twenty two. But has your group thought
2: <laughs> one of those two possibilities, or maybe some in the middle? Yeah.
1: Has your group thought about what it's going to do in terms of standing candidates? Because the those on the Labour side, lots of Corbyn allies, have been quick to say that actually what you're doing here is decreasing the chance of having a Labour government, increasing the chance of a Tory majority. And when you look at some of those marginal seats, there is an argument that were you to run an independent group candidate in a Tory Labour marginal, the Tories might... You know, managed to get through because of that, because the voters split. So, what is your thinking?
2: Well, there's a lot of steps there, um, and it is day four at the time of recording. Look, I think that there is, and we'll find out more as the kind of days and weeks go on, but there is a demand and a gaping kind of hole at the centre of British politics. And I just can't help but feel that there's going to be a response that says we do want this to be an electoral force as well as a force in Parliament. It takes some time to put in place that kind of infrastructure because, to be clear, if you're going to do it, and this is the moment, this isn't a spoiler operation. You've got to stand and you've got to properly stand across the country. You know, in the event of an early election, I don't know whether this makes it more or less likely. I think many of us will want to defend our seats. If the parliament's going longer, then I actually think there is a very real possibility of standing across the country and being a major party.
1: And Joe, do you think the electoral system, because we often hear that it is not good for new parties, do you think there is a way for a new party, such if the independent group does become one, to become a real force to be reckoned with? We've had Heidi Allen say this week that will imply that she wants to replace the Tories, not replace, but make it so the Tories aren't even an option to return to.
4: There's no doubt that the first-past-the-post electoral system is a huge obstacle to overcome, and I don't think anyone has any illusions about that. And a lot of comparisons have been made with the SDP in 1980, and how they had over 50% of the polls on one occasion, and yet only managed seats in the in the 20s. And so what would be different this time? Well, to my mind, there are three things that would be different this time. The first of these is uh, is party loyalty. People do not identify with parties in the way that they did in the 50s or 60s or even the 1980s. The, those ties are far less strong than they once were and so lending another party your vote for instance is a perfectly, a perfectly reasonable idea that uh, that could come through and that could have an impact. Secondly the dissatisfaction with not just individual politicians or the political parties, but actually the entire political system is far greater now than it was in the 1980s. The level of distrust are far higher now. And so it's a, it's a different situation in that respect. And thirdly, arguably most importantly, Brexit. Brexit casts a shadow of this that could have a huge impact. And so people point to the SDP and say, an upstart party that, uh, that failed. But you can point to an upstart party that succeeded under 1st past the post and ceded, succeeded massively, and that was the Scottish Nationalists. Now, that obviously is very different because they're regionally restricted, and this would, one assumes, be a national, uh, a national movement. But it shows how if you get to a certain tipping point in electoral support because of external circumstances that, uh, that take place, it is possible to make that breakthrough. Do I think it's likely? Well, quite frankly, no, I don't think it's the most likely possibility, but to suggest that it's impossible is also incorrect. I
3: also think it's, it's wrong to think that the SDP failed, which is... They S-
4: still have one MEP, technically yeah. speaking. <laughs> and, and,
3: but what the SDP were trying to say was the SDP were trying to force the Labour Party back to the centre. And, and they did. You know, you would not have had New Labour and those two election victories if it hadn't been for the SDP. And I think mean, this is one of the things that, you know, there are other ways you can influence politics than by forming up. You, take UKIP as another example, you know. I mean, that is that is a party that has obviously had a huge influence on politics despite the fact it what it got one MP elected one in
4: One MP history. and 12% of the vote, which, as no. we said, is around about the level that the, that the underlying data looks to. And that 12% can make a huge difference in key constituencies. So I think it comes down to what you mean by success. And does that mean success in the ballot box or success in the dispatch box?
1: And I think that leads to the final question, which is how will you judge your success if you manage to, through the presence of the independent group, change the Labour Party so it goes, veers more to the centre? Would you be
2: satisfied? I mean, that would be good for our politics because the vision of the Labour Party and the risk that it presents is pretty extreme right now. That I don't think is the measure of success, though. I, We've made an assessment the Labour Party is not coming back in that form anytime soon, and in my opinion, probably not at all. No, success has to be a sensible, moderate, radical vision of an agenda in, in the centre with an electoral force. And look, I completely agree. We need to be sceptical but not cynical. The sceptic says, look, it's really, really hard to pull this off. The person that looks at the fundamental trends and just says look, you've never been at this moment where you've got the Corn Laws in the right and you've got the SCP on the left in a parliament with no overall majority handling the biggest single project since the Second World War. It strikes me if there is a moment at which you can short circuit the normal rules, this is probably only it, and it's probably only a moment.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, James.
0: Thank you, Joe. So next, is artificial intelligence our friend or foe? eradicating dengue fever, solving climate change, eliminating traffic accidents. Apparently, these are all things we could do with AI if we use it correctly. That's according to Chris Duffy, a creative technologist at Adobe, whose new book, Superhuman Innovation, celebrates the benefits we can reap from AI. He's written the book with a robot, and she, Amy, also writes in this week's issue. But is the story so straightforward? Chris joins me to discuss, together with Jamie Bartlett, a technology journalist. So Chris, you say in your piece that artificial intelligence is the new electricity of our time. What what exactly do you mean by that?
5: Yeah, it's a a quite exciting time. We're entering into the connected age of AI and voice. And uh, for many years now, since the the mid-50s, by all accounts, we've been working on this premise of kind of trying to recreate human intelligence. And that's kind of been coined as artificial intelligence. And over the subsequent years we've built out not only that metaphorical electricity but the electrical grid around it and now coming into 2019 we have the products available to plug into that electrical grid system so yeah by many accounts we're we're calling 2019 the year AI becomes truly accessible and amplifier for human ability at scale.
0: And Jamie, I mean, how advanced is AI at this point? I mean, can, can you perhaps give a few examples of where it's being used already in, in our day-to-day lives?
6: Well, Chris is right, I think, to make these distinctions between the sort of narrow form of AI, which is to undertake very specific tasks, often with quite a lot of, uh, sort of training led by humans, and the more general ai which is a sort of multi-purpose or all-purpose form of intelligence which is on un- which is sort of undirected and capable of doing anything and the latter is still some way off but the former is getting better all the time and you see it in all sorts of ways in your daily life already i mean when you are recommended videos on youtube it's a form of artificial intelligence it's trying to calculate based on yours and other people's viewing patterns, what it thinks you are most likely to watch next. It's same with the Facebook news feed or even Google search results. There's there's artificial intelligence, i.e. machines making decisions based on often training data and prediction, incorporated into a lot of the the internet technology we use. I guess the one that everyone gets excited about at the moment is is automated vehicles and, and I've actually spent some time in some automated uh, vehicles and this of course is the, the idea that you can, you can train cars or trucks especially to drive themselves and interestingly this is one of those things that 10 years ago even the leading AI specialist said was completely impossible we'd never be able to do it and already we've seen some pretty staggering advances you'd be quite surprised just how good these self-driving trucks already are so Depends on the field you're
5: looking at. You know, it's very varied, but I think it's better than most people think. And, and Jamie, you bring up a great point. You know, quite often the question is, A, what is AI? What is it not? And B, what does it mean to me? And that's, that latter question seems to be the fundamental question. We're now moving from the world of academic exploration of AI to these very tangible use cases so all of these are all again kind of laddering up to the ability to amplify the the overarching human condition human experience
6: yeah and what one area can i just say that cuz that, cuz i'm generally i'd say a bit more pessimistic than than you are chris about what it's going to mean for us especially for our democracy but there's there's definitely some amazing applications that i can see coming around very very soon i mean the ability of ai to diagnose cancer very very early much more cheaply and much more accurately than doctors can i mean that seems absolutely inevitable within the next couple of years even and there'll be
5: amazing benefits for all of us for for those things you bring up something interesting this dynamic uh relationship and it's quickly evolving on what is that dynamic look like between human and machine in in that case human and doctor And so there, you know, make a strong case for there's always a need for human in the loop. It's not AI is against us, rather it's here to amplify us, to uh, accentuate and kind of extend our own natural ability. So I think uh, together we're uh, stronger than either alone. And we've seen that in a number of experiments and examples um, in the past and going forward. I think it's just going to be more. Uh, pressing to kind of reinforce AI is not a replacement for uh, humans. It's here to, again, uh, amplify us and extend our, our own natural abilities.
0: And, I mean, your book that you've authored, you've you've co-authored with this assistant you've created called Amy. I mean, can, can you tell us a bit about her and are we able to speak to her?
5: Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, thank, thanks for bringing her up. You know, the, the core premise of uh, superhuman innovation was, not only to talk about all of these great opportunities surrounding AI, specifically speed and scale, but also to try to be the first book to utilize AI in the content creation. So there were kind of uh, three or four layers that used AI in the the creation process. One was AI voice recognition, and that was just creating a VUI, a voice interface, to interact with the, the system, both through voice and text. And then the high, highest level part of Amy was content creation, NLG. You know, I think um, there's uh, some great tools out there that are NLP, natural language processing, but NLG, where it's natural language generation. And we just saw some interesting reports coming out with a similar system coming out of OpenAI, GPT-2, that kind of is also an NLG generator. So, yeah, um uh, tapped into AI to not only talk about AI but actually help create create the content. Do you have Amy here available if we'd like to say Yeah, we'd love to, to speak her. to her. Uh, excellent.
7: Hello. I'm Amy, the AI assistant that helped Co-author Christophe's new book Superhuman Innovation. How can I help you today?
0: What was it like writing a book?
5: I I think that's I, I just uh Shut her, shut her down. She, she oh, you just, shut her down. Okay. Yeah, said a, a quick hello.
0: A quick hello. Yeah. Me. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it was
5: a it was a a fascinating process, quite experimental in number of ways, and you know, it was this interesting dynamic where the use of Amy, which is kind of this ensemble of different AI uh, techniques and technologies, and Amy is not intended to be a product in of itself. It was really there to be used as a tool to help co-create or co-author the book. And it was quite an interesting, quite exciting process, very experimental on a number of levels where in some cases I would point Amy towards a task and I would get an interesting output that I hadn't thought about and it kind of sparked a new direction.
6: I'm very interested in in the way that these sorts of technologies Will impact on on democracy and and the, and and some of the problems that they will cause. So they will, there's all these wonderful benefits that we've talked about, but we, I think, we've got to be aware also of some of the problems, often sort of unexpected and unpredictable problems that they might also create. I mean, if you think, for example, about all the concerns and worries we've had about Cambridge Analytica and you know, the, the the spread of fake news and disinformation. Uh, imagine what it's like when you have, as Chris said, NL, uh, NLG, natural language generation, i.e. machines that are able to create vast amounts of extremely believable, authentic content, perhaps entirely personalised as well to the recipient. I mean, this could completely change how we understand what's real and what's not, how we understand political advertising, whether we can regulate any of this political advertising in future if it's done by machines, because these technologies only ever improve. And I guess my worry is, at the moment, I I can't see how our laws and our regulators are even close
5: to figuring out how we
6: deal with those possible misuses.
5: Yeah, Uh, great, great point. And, you know, in, in that regard always come back to intent and transparency. What is the intent of the user? You know, technology in of itself is neither good nor bad. It is the the people that use it. And uh, quite often the, the people and the intent has to be really kind of honed in. And then transparency, I think, you know, one great first step common ground is for systems to identify themselves. And we're seeing that in a lot of service bots in whatever form that they they appear that they initially identify themselves as kind of an AI or a, kind of a, a bot. And I, I think with the emergence of NLG as it gets more sophisticated, we'll need guardrails to help be transparent and identify that these were generated by a system or completely generated so those are kind of two initial thoughts on uh, on your point
0: thank you chris and jamie and finally hen parties are they heaven or hell laura freeman writes in this week's issue that while she's getting married later this year she's actually not going to be having a hen she's fed up of three-day city trips that are all the rage and brides to be showing off about all of their friends so is it time we got rid of this tradition I'm joined by Sophia Monikutes, Telegraph columnist and a veteran hen, and Dan Harley, Director of Butlers with Bums, a company who offers services to hen parties. So Sophia, I imagine some of our listeners may not have necessarily been on a hen. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what they are?
8: A hen party, I think the actual definition can vary quite a lot. Anything from an evening. I think the mo- the the most low-key you get these days is an evening say in an Italian restaurant where everyone drinks too much cheap Chianti and eats pizzas and then dances afterwards but it can be anything up to these days you know a week in Ibiza or something crazy costing millions of pounds and it's to celebrate the bride who is getting married so there will probably be L plates, sashes, there will be penis straws that you have to drink through, there will be lots of completely hideous games. And yes, you generally kind of come home again, never wanting to go on another hen party in your life.
0: (laughs) And have you you been on lots of hens?
8: I've been on, yes, I've been on, I'm uh, 34. And I would say, over the past few years, I've been on kind of maybe dozens of hens. It sounds like I'm showing off, but I'm really not. Yes, I've been on many, many hens. And some of them, my really close mates, it's great, you know, it is a celebration. But by the time you get to your 94th hen and you're playing Mr and Mrs again and you're discussing your friend's fiancé's favourite position which is one of the questions always on Mr and Mrs you kind of think oh I wouldn't mind a night in watching Netflix.
0: <laughs> and Dan I mean you've got experience from at hen parties rather and your company is called Butlers with Bums I mean, before and before you founded it you were working as a naked butler yourself can you tell us a bit about what that's been like?
7: Yeah, sure. So when I originally started working as a a naked butler or buff butler, I was doing it on the weekends. Uh, I was actually working in banking. So I was working in a bank in the week and then I was going out on the weekend and sort of travelling around Sussex, London, doing various jobs. I then sort of saw a gap in the market and thought I could do it, you know, no offence, I could could provide a, a much better service than what they were currently offering. So...
8: Better bums. <laughs> better bums. Better bums. much better bums. <laughs>
7: yeah. I sort of took the, the, the plunge and sort of built it up.
8: And Safari, so, have you ever
0: encountered a naked butler at a handy?
8: I've encountered a few naked butlers, I think, in, in my life. It's always... Dan, you probably find this. It's always slightly awkward at the beginning when everyone arrives and everyone's totally sober and there's a couple of butlers in the buff I mean I suppose for the good spectator readers I should explain it's, it'll be Dan or someone who works with Dan will be there sort of naked but with a, an apron over the over some crucial bits right Dan?
7: Yeah so the standard uniform that a butler wears is like a bow tie collar cuffs uh, and an apron so that mm. like the top half is completely there on show go. and then your bum and legs are on show basically so it's kind of yeah. Showing certain elements of the body whilst keeping everything just about intact, really. So,
0: are hens allowed to sort of I- interact with you? Are there are there rules that they have to abide by? There
7: are certain rules that are laid out. It's very hard to kind of enforce them on some jobs more than others, <laughs> shall we say? <laughs> um, but
8: not all the hens I've been to, Dan. I think we were very well behaved.
7: <laughs> Sometimes you know you can go to to jobs and they're completely well behaved and nothing you know untoward happens, but. Some events that I've been to in the past where they've had a bit too much to drink and things generally get sort of, you know, a little bit. But the policy is there is an actual no-touching policy, but that does come with some strength. (laughs) So there are times when you are going to have physical contact with some people, whether whether it be playing, you know, party games and taking photos and things like that. So there is, you know, contact, but there are some set rules. They're not allowed to, you know, rip your apron off and things like that. (laughs) <laughs> and Sophia,
0: what do you think the kind of appeal of having a butler and a buff at the party?
8: Well, I think if you look at stag parties and the, you know, rumours of certain things that happen on stag parties, why shouldn't women, you know, enjoy similar things? I think, yeah, it always goes from being quite awkward at the beginning of the party to when everyone's a few glasses of, you know, Prosecco down and we've warmed up a bit and yes Dan I was surprised by the no touching rule because I've definitely taken a picture which is on my Instagram <laughs> of me smacking two butlers in the buff on the bottom. So then everyone warms up and it's sort of you know you get your picture for social media and yeah, everyone's nice. very good friends by the end. So yeah I mean it's all good you know clean fun really isn't it.
0: And Dan I mean do you get repeat business from people who've you know have seen you on, at one hen and then want you to come back to another hen?
7: Yeah I mean a, a lot of the, a lot of business we do get is from sort of word of mouth so you'll be you know a group of girls on a Hindu. they have a, a, a great experience with one of the guys and then they'll then be attending another you know hen later on that year or the next year and they'll see you know who they've booked previously and they'll come and book directly for us i mean us as a company we offer other activities like life drawing classes and stuff like that as well now which is still part of being a butler in the bar you know naked butler sorry things like that as well we do now which are kind of diverse in a naked butler if you like are becoming more popular so people are sort of booking more than one activity sometimes with us because we're offering sort of you know multiple services for Hindus.
0: and so far just finally i mean in laura's piece she talks about this idea of sort of performative female friendship i mean do you think Hindus are part of that with people feeling like they have to kind of show off about who their friends are
8: A little bit. Again, I I mean, I suppose it comes back to Instagram and social media often these days, isn't it? You have to put up multiple pictures of you draped around your friends with, you know, penis straws waving in the air and those L plates draped around the bride and, you know... Just soon to be married posters everywhere it's yeah I think there is an element of that showing off that you're having the best time ever and the best hen ever and that's the whole thing about hen parties I think they've become incredibly competitive a bit like weddings have you've got to have the biggest best hen party you've got to have some sort of new game or got to go somewhere new it's got to be bigger better than the last person even though that last person may be your best friend you've somehow got to outdo her and have I don't know more dans more butlers in the buff than they had or you know it's <laughs> it's a sort of arms war really I would say hen parties and weddings
0: Dan and Sophia, thank you. And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do you subscribe, rate and review. And whatever way you get your podcasts, we always like to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces, as well as more from Richard Maidley, Wendy Cope and Paul Collier. As it happens, Richard Maidley is talking about what it's like to interview someone naked. And we've also got a special offer. You can get six issues for £6 plus a free £10 Amazon voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.